0: You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Ezra chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in Babylonia, in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And Ekbatna, The citadel that is in the province of Media. A scroll was found on which this was written. A record in the first year of Cyrus the king. Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt. The place where sacrifices were offered. And let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits and its breadth 60 cubits with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury, and also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozini and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay, from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, A beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dun hill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this, or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Then... According to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozini and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree Of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. Well, this is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Let me pray quick. Father, thank you for your word. And pray, Father, that you would come and speak to us That you would help us to hear from you. Uh, Lord, I know that each of us uh, walks in here this morning in different circumstances and different seasons of life. And so, Lord, I'm so limited I couldn't even begin to come close to figuring out who needs to hear what. But the great thing, Father, is I know that you see all and you know all. And so, Lord, I pray that you would bring a word through your word uh, to each heart in this room. That you would speak into that place of restoration and rebuilding in each person's life. Whether that be calling someone to you for the first time this morning, or whether that be continuing the process of restoration in them. Lord, I pray that you would do that, and then some. Lord, I pray that you would cast a vision for us of that day. That day when we would stand in front of you, fully justified. Fully perfected, without spot or blemish, with royal and righteous white robes of perfection in your presence. Pray that you would do that in Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. <coughs> you know, one of the uh, <laughs> one of my uh, favorite times to preach is whenever we do these. Family feasts. I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> if it's not obvious. No. I love it because, uh, sarcastically, because I am competing with the smell of wonderful food this morning. And I hope that as you savor the smell of that food and you lawn and you hope to eat that food here in a little while, that uh, somehow in the midst of that, Kind of experiential thing that you would also at the same time, as you hear God's word preached, that you would somehow also have a similar yet better kind of a hope and longing awakened inside of you uh, for that day when we will stand in front of our Father in heaven, again fully justified, fully perfected, white robes of righteousness. No more tears, no more mourning, no more pain, no more sin just the perfect presence of our Father. And uh, hopefully those two <laughs> would somehow coincide, the longing to eat food and the longing to be in heaven. Um, so what I want to talk about this morning is the process of restoration and rebuilding. Have you ever rebuilt something or restored something? You restore an old car, you restore a house, you, you, know, you, you restore your lawnmower maybe, maybe. Um, the process of restoring and rebuilding. It really, as we've done this study through Ezra, it's really what it's been about, right? This first five chapters or so. Uh, the reality about the, the process of uh, rebuilding and restoring something is that it's a very long process, right? It's never a short process. Even if you were to take this into the relational realm and think about restoring or rebuilding a relationship, whether that be a marriage or a friendship, it's always a long process, never short, typically takes longer than you hope it would, usually costs more than you expect it to. And here's one of the problems, in that realization when you think about this, one of the problems is, is that we, we live in an age of immediate gratification, right? especially the Christmas season. You find yourself getting frustrated because the Christmas gifts you ordered aren't getting here fast enough or there isn't stuff on the shelves. And we know all of that going on right now. We live in an age of immediate gratification, right? Amazon gets your stuff to you within a couple of days, typically. You got fast food chains on just about every corner of the community. You can transfer money, the snap of a finger just like that online. thinking about like my favorite movies and tv shows and when i was younger you used to have to actually drive down to a place called blockbuster movie (laughs) (laughs) rental and you just hoped that that movie you wanted was going to be on the shelf or maybe they had extra copies or even if it wasn't there on the shelf that the guy that was running the store or the gal was running the store would even just run over to the little Dropbox area and look for you maybe your movie or your series would be there you know, and then you had a certain amount of time you had to watch it in. And, I mean, you, you can get a movie or a series right now by just clicking on various different apps immediately, right now. Um, so Immediate gratification um, is what we often expect because we're, we're living in that, right? We're living in that. But the process of restoring something, the process of, re, of rebuilding something, something that's been broken or something that's been destroyed, Again, that often takes a lot longer than we typically wish it would. It usually costs more than we expect it to. And I think it often requires more than we have at first as well, right? Like there, there's kind of a tension between, on the one hand, our, our desire and, and our vision or our hope to finish a project. There's that, right? You have that, that longing, that hope. I can't wait till this gets done. And then there's a tension between that and then, like, your current reality, like, the actual process for getting it done. You know, I, we've done lots of projects in our house. Usually, Christy does this when I leave. So I leave for a week for a trip or something, and she'll start sending me pictures of the stuff she's tearing apart. Um, the one most notable was our bathroom. There was the floor, too. Um, there were the walls and the living I mean, I can go on forever. The bathroom is probably the most notable because you need to take showers, you need to use a toilet, those kinds of things. And uh, I think we started that project and a month later we're still working on it. It took a while. Um, there's a tension between that desire to see it finished and the time that it actually takes to get it done. Your hopes and your reality, right? Um, I think when that tension kind of gets stretched, um, it can be a little bit overwhelming, right? When the tension between those two things kind of set in, it can kind of overwhelm you. Um, when your future hope and your current reality gets stretched, I think what happens, at least this is my life, and I think so of my experience, so just in human nature, we wind up getting distracted, right? Once that tension starts to set, like a rubber band starts to get stretched. We get distracted. We run out of energy, we, we lose focus, uh, the, the vision for the completed project gets a little bit blurry, we, we get frustrated with our own shortcomings in the midst of it, right? Like, I don't know how to grout tile very well. Um, you, get, you get frustrated with your own shortcomings, your own imperfections, and you, you wind up sometimes abandoning the entire project altogether, right? Or you take shortcuts to get it done, which is never wise. <laughs> never wise. So I was thinking about some of this, and uh, I was a sheetrocker before I became uh, a pastor. I owned a sheetrocking business for about 12, 13 years, um, maybe longer. So I was involved in the construction industry for a number of years, right? And uh, one of the things I really enjoyed, we did both commercial and residential. One of the things I really enjoyed was doing residential houses. Um... Because people um, are looking forward to that house being rebuilt, you know, and the, and the, or being built. And, and the owners would come periodically and start to visit. And there would be kind of this uh, palpable uh, excitement over this soon-to-be-finished project, right? And my, my stage in the building process uh, as a sheet rocker um, kind of looks like this. The foundation's already been laid, right? The uh, exterior interior walls are already framed the heat, the electrical, the plumbing, all that stuff's already roughed in, the windows are there. Um, and then so I show up on the, sheen, on the scene, and I, I hang the sheetrock, I finish it all, and after me, the trim carpenters come in. You know, they put the cabinets in, and the flooring, and all the electrical and plumbing gets finished up. Um, then the painters. Typically the painters are almost dead last, along with your carpet layers. And Kind of tie everything together with a special color that the the homeowners would have chosen. I, I love doing that I, I love seeing the excitement um, in people and The reason I think I enjoyed the excitement was what was about to happen as this home is being built as this visible Structure is being built in this space It's at a, a certain place, right? It's at a certain time in history and there's a certain family that's going to move into this house, right? The Smiths or the Jones, because you always use the Smiths and the Jones as illustrations. I don't know if we have any Smiths or Jones in here. We have Marinos. When the Italians move into the neighborhood, it gets kind of scary, and everybody knows, right? The reality is the, a family is about to move into the area. that They're about to make their presence known. And their presence is going to be made known because their home is there. They exist. Sometimes even in, in that process, you know, the building process slows down, gets held up for one reason or the other. But everyone around in that area, in that neighborhood knows the house, the home of the Jones or the Smiths or the Marinos or the Burbox or whoever. It's, it's about done. That family is about to move into the neighborhood, and it gets kind of exciting. And that's the sense I get from the text, right? Leading all the way up until now, if we've done this kind of week in and week out as we've looked at what's been happening in the book of Ezra. It's been about the rebuilding and the restoring of the temple. It's been a really long, really, really hard process, Right? A ton of setbacks in the story as we've looked at it. Nevertheless, the restoration and the rebuilding of the house of God is back on track in the last chapter until now. In fact, Ezra actually uses this imagery of the house of God a lot. Uh, I'm just specifically in, in the 15 verses I just read, he uses that imagery of the house of God uh, about 10 times. The entire community at this point knew that God was about to take up residence in that area again um, as though He had ever really left, right? It's not like God ever really left in the first place. But from a human perspective, everybody was looking on and going, oh, the God of Israel is about to take up residence. His home is being built here. And as we looked at this last week, um, as we thought about this restoring and this rebuilding of the house of God and how it had resumed in the last chapter. It had resumed with the support of the prophets, right? Donnie did a really good job last week, kind of preaching what I would call a theology of the prophet. Um, And that was in the first couple of verses of last week's chapter. The rest of the chapter is absolutely fantastic if you go and you study it and you look at it. But this is what had happened. The rebuilding of the temple had actually resumed under the support of the prophets. And what the prophets were doing basically, to kind of for me to take what Donnie said last week and kind of sum it down to a quick statement, is they they, they were speaking truth for the moment and foretelling truth for the future. It's a prophet's job always is to speak truth, whether that be what you need to hear right now for the here and now, as well as warning and blessing in the future if. You do or do not listen to what he says here and now. You follow me? So the prophets are basically preaching uh, Directively into the rebuilding and restoring Of the house of God. That was what was taking place last week. And in the midst of that, Israel's enemies aren't letting up. The setbacks, not like the setbacks just dissipated Because prophets showed up on the scene. In fact, you could say it was probably just as hard. Their enemies were still there trying to stop them. In verses 3 through 5 of the chapter from last week, there's this really fascinating part of the text that that says that that Israel did not stop rebuilding. Why? Because uh, the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. There's a providential aspect to the fact that God's presence was already with the prophets, already with the Jews, and because of that, they did not stop rebuilding building That's a fascinating piece of the text. They continued to restore and rebuild Her enemies didn't stop, but Israel continued to build. They didn't tap out in fear. They continued moving forward Israel's response to her enemies last week in that chapter if you look at it her her response to her enemies under the watchful eye of God, under God's sovereign hand, His presence, right? And and under the preaching of the prophets in that chapter, I think it might be perhaps one of the most beautiful pictures of joyful, courageous, resolute human obedience, at least in all of this book as you look at it. It's not very often that as you look at the human nature in Scripture that you actually get to see a shining moment like David taking Goliath's head off, right? I think it's a beautiful moment. Sounds pretty violent in my mind, but there's really not a lot of places because the reality of the gospel is that we all fail and we need Jesus. And this is true. Yet there are these shiny moments where God enables and empowers people to walk obediently. And that is one of those moments last week. And Israel's actual response last week in chapter five when they were being challenged by their enemies was this. They're like, hey, we're not gonna stop building the temple because we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. That's a great statement. Like, go ahead and bring all you got. Bring your big guns. I serve the God of heaven and earth. Like, heaven and earth is his footstool. I think uh, uh, earth is his footstool, right? Like, that's the God I serve. Like, I don't respond like that very well all the time, but I can tell you that the moments that I do respond that way in this journey of God, like rebuilding and restoring my life, I want to remember those. It's not a reminder of my ability. It's a reminder of God's power in and through me, right? Mm -hmm. That's what took place last week. They say, hey, we're we're servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we're rebuilding the house that was built many years ago. That was verse 11. So the rest of Israel's response in chapter 5, as we get into chapter 6, the rest of Israel's response to her enemies, again, under the watchful eye of God, under the preaching of the prophets, it's a really great study that reveals what happens in the life of a believer who catches a vision for what it means to be a child of a redeeming God. And this was a question Donnie asked last week really well. Who do you think you are? Like when you know that you know that you know that you are the child of a redeeming God, whose throne extends throughout the heavens and the earth, whose promise of redemption can be fully trusted, I think you begin to live differently, more courageously. Things begin to happen. Now on the heels of last week's text, we jump into chapter 6 and we find Israel, they're still laboring. They're still laboring to restore, still laboring to rebuild. That's the other thing about restoring and rebuilding is it's hard work. That's sometimes what we find out too, is that the work of rebuilding and restoring is a little bit harder than we thought it was going to be. Have you ever gone through a rough patch in your marriage or had a rough patch with your kids or had a rough patch with your coworkers or had a rough patch with some addiction or sin you've been struggling with trying to redig yourself out of that even with God's help is still hard and it takes some hard work. You don't just get to sit back on the couch and be like, "Oh, it'll happen when it happens." You've actually got to get in there and do some hard work, right? And that's kind of what we see taking place in the text. Notice what you see first. First thing you see is King Darius finds a decree concerning the house of God. Right? That's the first thing that takes place in our text. King Darius finds a decree concerning the house of God. Now, what's a decree? A decree from a king is basically in order to do something or not do something. Okay? It's it's, it's a mandate. We're familiar with those words, right? (laughs) It's not a suggestion. It's a, it's, a, it's a mandate. Um, it's a royal directive. Um, and, and if it's disobeyed, um, the penalty of disobedience could be the death penalty for whoever the offending party is. Now, I'm speaking in broad categorical terms here, but I think the context kind of shows you that. Even as you get down to the end where King Darius says, hey, if anybody uh, alters this thing... Let that guy be murdered and his house destroyed, right? We'll get to that again later. So that's kind of what a decree is. In this case, King Darius, the current king in charge, he issues a decree. And his decree, his order is that search would be made in Babylon for another decree. So he's looking for another order, kind of like incoming president looking for the the mandates or the decrees of the outgoing president. He wants to see what his predecessor predecessor had said in regards to the house of God. That previous decree, which he finds, was written by King Cyrus. You can go back to, I think, chapter 1 of Ezra and kind of read some of that. And if you've been with us and hearing the story, you kind of remember that. Darius finds that decree from King Cyrus, and that decree simply ordered the rebuilding of the house of God in Jerusalem, right? And the reason why, he says, is so that sacrifices in public worship can be made to God once again. And the cool thing is it's not just that. He doesn't just say, hey, go rebuild and restore. Let them do this. He also stipulates the size of the house of God. He stipulates the building materials for the house of God. He stipulates the designation of royal funds to cover the cost of building the house of God. I mean, this is a really big decree. He also decrees that the stolen furniture, the furniture that was stolen, um, be put back in to the house of God. So how would you summarize this? At the end of the day, what, what King Darius finds, when he pulls up King Cyrus' uh, edict or his decree, is, is it's, it's a complete building project from the outside in or from the inside out. I guess from the outside in. Rebuild this thing and even refurnish this thing. It's a complete building project. And I think as I thought about that, it was really fascinating for me to think about um, this idea that a pagan king, right? Um, A pagan king would actually sanction the restoration and the rebuilding of the house of God, right? Like the Persian king here is literally supporting a faith-based initiative. Think about that. He's literally supporting a faith-based initiative, um, and, he's, and it's being paid for by state funds. And those state funds were raised through some kind of a general taxation policy, right? Um, Can you imagine what that would be like, you know, if an unbelieving president of the United States showed up in Hastings and was like, hey, we're going to rebuild this big church building here, and the uh, federal government's going to pay for it. <laughs> Can you imagine that? <laughs> I can't imagine that. <laughs> I mean, you could take it a step further and say, can you imagine if an unbelieving president of the United States came in and said, and I don't only just want to rebuild like this physical building, I want to help you rebuild your spiritual life. I want to invest dollars from the Federal Reserve into seeing your life become more Christ-like. Like that's what's taking Place here. I mean, one further thought on this is, can you imagine what it would be like if an incoming president actually looked back at the previous president and was like, oh, he made this edict that the Well Church in Hastings would be built and fully funded out of federal dollars, and I'm just going to go ahead and keep that in place rather than changing 157 of them and throwing the other ones out the door, right? I mean, isn't that what we go through every time something changes in our government? It's like, yeah, it's like, it's like a yo-yo, this is one of those moments where you can go, hey, I, this happened by God's grace, under his watchful eye, under his sovereignty. He made this happen. Don't be confused either. Um, it wasn't like this Persian king. These Persian kings were all that great. Okay, They weren't. Um, I don't think they were godly men. Uh, there's something to be gained for them out of this. But it's further proof that God, God moves through even the most sinful of people. To bring about his purposes in restoring and rebuilding a place where he will live so to speak right here on earth so that people might see him in all his glory and all his majesty it's powerful think about what happens next the second thing that we see is that king darius writes his own decree he finds the first decree now he writes his own decree concerning the house of god Now, I was thinking about King Darius sitting down with his pen. He's just read King Cyrus's, and now he's got the candles lit or whatever, and he's now writing his own decree. And when I was thinking about that, I had this old friend of mine in drywall that I worked with, and he would always say, the pen is mightier than the sword. I was like, you are such a dork. (laughs) (laughs) He would say, the pen is mightier than the sword. Now, he would usually say that when he was patting his time card. That's... that's, that's, (laughs) That's the way he would think about it. I would always think, you have the pen right now, but the the guy who's going to write your paycheck, if he figures this out, he has a sword. You're not going to be saying that later, possibly. Um, as I read this, though, I could hear my my old friend's voice saying that. You know, the the pen is mightier than the sword. Think of King Darius writing his own decree back to Israel's enemies, and he's writing it in light of King Cyrus's decree. I kind of love the threatening sound of uh, King Darius if you're looking at verses six and seven. Uh, Because in those verses, man, he instructs Israel's enemies to do what? Keep away. (laughs) That's really good. Keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. I I can see Israel's enemies has been after Israel quite a bit lately. I can see them standing there waiting, hoping that they're going to get the approval to go annihilate Israel again. And the king says, no, keep away. Let this building happen. Like, see, Israel's enemies standing there kind of shaking in their boots as they read those words, right? Like, I'm sure they had plans just to stop what God was doing in Israel. King Darius says, knock it off. And he doesn't just uh, tell them to stay away, if you look at the text. He also instructs them to do whatever they can to help in the restoration and the rebuilding process, right down to supplying the royal financial aid to them so that Israel can offer sacrifices. I love the way uh, the author puts it, the way Ezra puts it. He says that Darius, in, in his decree, says, Hey, I want to, want to offer sacrifices, I want to allow Israel, help Israel offer sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Again, I think there's a little bit of kickback that the king is hoping for, but there's also a recognition in this. For a king, an earthly king, to say the God of heaven, that the God of heaven might bless the king, so to speak, and his sons, that's a pretty profound thing to be said. You top all that off. You top all that off with what Darius does as he concludes this decree. I mentioned this earlier. There's a real sharp warning to anybody who tries to mess with the rebuilding of the house of God, right? Um, He basically says, hey, if anybody messes with this uh, this decree I'm putting forward, if anybody messes with the rebuilding and the restoring of the house of God, we're going to execute that person by impaling them on a beam from his own house. So, you know, big picture, uh, mess mess with the restoration and the rebuilding of the house of God, and we're going to mess with your house. That's what he's saying and not only mess with your house we're going to mess with you we're going to take a big beam out of your house we're going to impale you on it and as you're dying impaled on that beam you get to watch your house being destroyed that's graphic stuff i always like to say the bible's not for sissies (laughs) it's not there's some heavy stuff in it so he gives that massive sharp warning um, and the sense that i get here When I think about that, I read about that, I think King Darius is super serious about restoring and rebuilding the house of God. I mean, it's so serious that he would say somebody is going to die if this gets messed with. And I was thinking about how serious he's taking that, even as a pagan king who's not really like a Christian or a believer. And I think What would it look like for believers today to take the restoring and rebuilding process of our lives that seriously? That we would recognize that the restoration and rebuilding process of our hearts and our lives as we follow Jesus, it is serious and it did require death. And that we would take it that serious. Not that we'd be willing to kill somebody so that our spiritual life could grow better, but that we would just have that same serious nature rather than kind of just the flippant, I'm going to go to church on Sunday, and that's going to be my spiritual box, and then the rest of the week I'm going to do whatever. And I love the way King Darius signs off at the end of his decree. Look at what he says in verse 12. He says, May the God who has caused his name to dwell there, to live there, its the word dwell, overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. When you read those words. Again, this is a pagan king recognizing that it is God himself who causes his own presence to be there. And inside of that, when you think about it, the reality is this, guys. Like, God doesn't need a physical house. He doesn't need one. He, God already makes his presence known without a physical home. But when God decides that he wants a house built, um, by golly, that's what he gets. And there's no king that can stop him. There's no sin from humans that can stop this process either. God had this in mind, and therefore he's doing it. And he'll do it through whoever human agents he may use. His presence will be made known regardless of the opposition. That's, That's what I see there. What happens next? What happens next the last thing that happens in our text is that the restoring and the rebuilding of the house of god is finally finished it's finally finished <laughs> we're finally there do you think about this um, it, it's been more than a decade it's taken them more than a decade more than 10 years i there's been a few i know there's a few of you in the, here that have built homes or do you imagine a building process that took 10 years a long time it's actually more than 10 years it could have been closer to 13 or 14 years by the time they got this thing built it's finally complete though it's finally complete Israel's enemies uh, they conceded their harassment campaign and you had the support of these preaching prophets You have the decree of God, and then you have the decrees of these three kings, these Persian kings, and the house of God is complete. You can actually follow the date to a T, March 12th of 516 B.C. Does anybody remember the date that we moved into this building? Anybody that's been with us for a long time? It was a very specific date, date, wasn't it? (laughs) There is a Facebook post out there that marks the date that we received the deed to the property. think so mmm I think it was September hey we don't have to argue about it you can prove it to me later (laughs) it might have been April but I do remember I don't remember the specific date but I remember it was like January 1st second or third somewhere in that time frame. and I think it was was it this year Morgan or was it last year that we got the deed that's what I can't remember if it was 2020 or 2021. And we could all probably blame COVID Brain for the whole thing. But it's this year, wasn't it? It was January of this year that we received the deed. Um, those are exciting days, right? <laughs> this is an exciting day. March 12th of 516 BC. The, the temple is built. The house of God is built. I can't imagine what that first day was like. But if you've ever moved into a new home or moved in or just moved to a home, you know what that first day is like, right? Um, You've dreamed about it a little bit. Um, You worked hard for it. Uh, Sometimes you wondered if it was ever going to happen, right? Am I ever going to get this stupid moving truck packed? (laughs) Can we ever get through all the crap and make the loads to the dump? And you dream about it. You wonder if it's going to happen. And then it happens. And you're there. And you're in that new space, that new house, that new home. And it feels like a little slice of heaven for a few moments, doesn't it? I think think this day when the temple was finished, when the house of God was finished, I think it was probably an absolutely exhilarating day for Israel. I think it's one that they would definitely celebrate, and they're going to in the next couple of verses. And we're going to get there a few weeks from now, but I just think it's really important to stop and think about how it must have felt to experience that day. Experience that day. Can you imagine that day when rebuilding is complete? I don't know what the spirit's been stirring in you as we've worked through this. And I don't know what he's working to like restore in you and rebuild in you what you're longing for and hoping for and the reality of the process over here and you think about the tension in between and you're waiting for that day when i think about this i can't help but think about the last 10 years of my own spiritual growth i can't even i can't even get past the last 10 months We were in a short meeting before we came in here, and uh, Patrick um, does such a good job of leading a, a meeting each Sunday before we step into this space and lead. And he played a song and asked us all to spend some time just listening to the Lord and asking, where are you at right now? The song that he played, I hadn't heard since March of this year. And March of this year, we took one of our daughters into the hospital thinking that maybe she had overdosed on on some sleeping pills that song that he played you know to ask him what it was was the song that kind of got me through that season so that's why i say i I just think back to the last 10 months of what god's walked me through what he's restoring and rebuilding inside of me in terms of trusting him but if i do step back and i think of the last 10 years you know I think of all sorts of different things. You got your daily grind, right? That you're walking out. You got your your daily war against your own sin, your your own failures. You you got these desires inside of you uh, to see your life perfected, right? For the battle, the battle's definitely won by the Lord, but you also know you're kind of fighting in that, and there is a day when that battle will be over. Um. There's this realization in the midst of all that, for me at least, as I think of those 10 years, that I fail more than I wish I did. I take these tiny little baby steps forward. I feel like I take massive steps backwards. All those uh, seasons and times of getting up again after falling down, shaking the dust off, um, getting back into it. I almost imagined being somewhat like King Darius and going back not looking for some human king's edicts or decrees, but looking at God's decrees, his promises for my life, sitting down with my journal early in the morning or or late at night or in the middle of the night and writing out my own little decrees, so to speak, like I'm going to reinvest in trusting God in this area of my life, seeing God like renew my hope and my my ability to trust God in the work of Christ, that cross. There's days where I experience what feels like heavenly victory for sure in this struggle of life, right? And I think we're all in that process if we're following Jesus. If you've trusted in Jesus, then you and I are actually being restored and rebuilt into the house of God. And that's kind of the way I want to conclude this morning. leave us thinking about that. See, 1 Peter 2, 5 says that if you have trusted in Christ as your crucified, risen, and returning Savior, then you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, the reality here is this. The house of God that we just saw completed here in the book of Ezra, like all it is, is a prototype. It doesn't exist when Jesus returns for us, okay? If you do your study of Revelation, it's not there because that physical building that was built here in Ezra that we've been watching and thinking about, it's only a prototype of the body of Christ, the church, where God is going to take up residence as His home. That's a powerful thought. You and I, if we come to Christ in repentance, and if we come to Him trusting Him, then we are the new temple. We are the house of God. And This is where the watching world can look in and say, whoa, I see the presence of God over there. Like God is living in that place at this specific time in history and when i walk into those gatherings with those people i feel god there there's a reason for that and it has nothing to do with the bricks and the stones and the layers of sheetrock it has everything to do with the bricks and the stones of the people who have been saved by jesus and filled with his spirit and we're glued together like mortar between bricks by this message of the gospel and the power of the holy spirit Obviously, when you think about this process of restoration and rebuilding that each of us as these little individual stones are going through that make up the body, the house, the home of God. When you think about that restoration and that rebuilding process, it includes things, right? Simple things like reading Bibles, spending time in prayer and Spending time remembering the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. And time spent confessing sin and repenting from it. And time spent serving unselfishly and giving generously. Like all all those things are vital and part of that restoration and rebuilding process. Ultimately, all those seemingly kind of mundane, hard to do disciplines, we call them. Those are all meant to turn our hearts more and more to Jesus. Jesus is the one who holds us together as the temple or the house of God. And he does it through his work at a bloody cross. He does it through his victory in an empty tomb. He does all that in light of his promise of heaven. Can you imagine that day? Can you imagine that day when you will stand in front of your Savior You'll stand in front of your father in heaven and his arms will be open wide and he'll be saying, I don't care how much of a prodigal you were, how rotten you were, how dirty you were, and how how much you sinned and how much you failed. What I care about is that you trusted in the work of Jesus at that cross and I'm your father, well done, my good and faithful servant. Come here, give me a big hug, let's throw a big fat party. That's what that day is going to be like. I can't, all I can do is just emotionally tell you that I can't wait for that day. I can't wait for that day. There are many that I walk with that don't know Jesus the way that I do. Probably the same for you. Some of whom I've loved for 20-some years. And I beg God daily, on good days, on bad days, I'm angry at him because he hasn't done what I want him to do. And even that sin and failure, he overlooks it. Because Jesus stood in my place on a cross. Not just stood in my place, was crucified in my place. He bore the wrath that was designed for me. So that I could be washed clean. And be made new. Restored and rebuilt in complete perfection. And on that day when we join Jesus in heaven with other saints who have gone before us, that day will blow the doors off of any day, especially this day where the house of God was finished in Ezra. Because on that day in heaven, what we will experience is the full transforming, redeeming, restoring, rebuilding power of the cross. On that day, we will experience the full victory of the empty tomb as the dead rise up out of those tombs and walk finally with new bodies and new skin. We'll have the fully realized hope of heaven. All that tension between the current reality and the hope of that day will snap and be gone and come together like that. And on that day, we will experience the full and perfect Presence of God. On that day, the house of God, the church, the church of Jesus Christ, we will be complete. There will be no more brokenness. There will be no more sin. There will be no more sickness. On that day, we'll be complete. And in the words of one of my favorite bands, once and for all. Can you imagine that day? I hope you can just stand with me and let's pray Jesus thank you thank you for this word this morning and this vision of that day when all of what you have done to restore and to rebuild us will be once and for all complete I pray father as we close in song and prayer and communion that you would lead us to the foot of a bloody cross help us see the power and the victory of that empty tomb and invigorate us this morning with the vision of that day when we will experience the full hope and joy of heaven In jesus name amen you're listening to an audio message from the well